I think that it's a misnomer that money needs to be completely spent down to the $2,000 limit that might face an individual when it comes to assets. Um, but there really are some things that can and should be done. Paying for funerals, right? There, there, that's just one small example of things that people need to do sooner than later. And so I find that families often wait too late. They assume it's inevitable that Medicaid is going to be needed. They know we have to spend down to a certain limit. Sometimes they wait until there's not enough assets left to even pay for professional help to guide them through this process. Mm -hmm. And so it's a several month process. And again, the sooner you start, the better. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios in the Brewer District, just south of downtown Columbus, Ohio. Hi, this is Brett. Our guest today has provided us some great information over the past years. Given the complexity of Medicaid, its rules, regulations, and paperwork, we knew that Larray Schrader from Schrader Law was the expert to call for assistance in this important decision and discussion. Larray, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back. Lorraine, thank you so much for coming today and talking to us and bringing your expertise. Um, we have all known individuals who cannot afford their long-term care, um, and it's a, such a complicated process. You opened your law practice inspired by a belief that many need an advocate, particularly older adults. So um, thank you so much for coming today. Let's start, though, with an overview of your background and how you have structured your firm to meet these needs in our community. Yes. After several years in financial services, I had the opportunity to go to law school, which I had wanted for some time. I was still helping care for my grandparents who were in their 90s. And they were living with my mom because they felt so strongly about not being in a facility. And during my time in law school, I realized that this was something that was very important to me. I still felt I would likely pursue corporate law, but given the opportunity um, to focus full time on those who are older and who had these concerns, am I going to lose my house? What's, what's going to happen to me or to my spouse? Um, that when I left law school, I started practicing part time to help families with those challenges. While I was a student, my grandmother did end up needing long-term care um, in a way that was not met um, at our home anymore. And so unfortunately, I saw the whole Medicaid spend-down process, and she spent the last two years in a facility, and other people are going through that, and it's scary. She was fortunate enough to have an advocate, but not everybody does. And this is a changing area of law. And there aren't a lot of practitioners who are willing to do it. This is not a topic regularly covered. It's not on the bar exam. This is just an area that um, people uh, choose to specialize in later, mainly when they have a passion or have been otherwise exposed. Mm. And so that was true with me. And I've continued to dedicate my practice to estate planning, but also with a special focus on elder law and including Medicaid eligibility and planning. What is Medicaid? I mean, what's its goal? And and. I know it's part, you know, it's healthcare, but how does it help those that are most vulnerable? Medicaid is a very broad term. There's federal funding, but programs are administered by the states, and each state has different rules. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind, especially when you're comparing notes at the family table at Thanksgiving, because everyone's experience would be different, even by county within Ohio. Medicaid is a broad program. It includes many, such as the SNAP Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and health insurance for children, assistance with Medicare premiums for older adults. But it also includes significant uh, forms of long-term care 
for adults that meet the criteria that may be in a skilled nursing facility, but we also have separate programs available to people in assisted living that can't afford their care or people who are living at home and they need um, people to come to their home a few hours a week uh, to provide assistance and they'll stay in the community. So long-term care Medicaid is um, the area where I focus. Um, but again, it's just one part of the state budget and the state area of expenditure because it also includes health care, right? Their doctor visits, their prescriptions, et cetera. So that's the area that I have focused on. But when you say Medicaid, there's so many different programs you can't tell um, without really understanding and looking under the hood what someone is actually receiving in terms of benefits. And, and also, it is a program that is open to individuals based on some criteria. And as you mentioned, Ohio's criteria is different. It's not like Medicare where, you know, 65, everybody's eligible. Tell us a little bit more about those parameters and um, what's going on with Ohio. Sure. The, you have to be a resident of Ohio, which when we're talking about moving older parents, you know, maybe to be closer to children or vice versa, occasionally a consideration, but usually it's easy. Most people are living here and there's no question. The other major areas of qualification are income. There are limits set to the amount of income that an older adult can receive and keep to in order to uh, um, collect long-term care benefits. Another area is assets. What do they have in the bank? What do they have in their name? What is titled to them? Because long-term care Medicaid has restrictions on the asset limits in addition to the income. And you have to need care. You have to be sick enough. So I summarize it sometimes with families by saying you have to be broke enough and you have to be sick enough. And there are ways um, to become eligible financially if you aren't automatically broke enough. There are many families that are stuck in the middle. I call it middle class math. They have too much to automatically be eligible for Medicaid, and they have far too little to pay for the monthly care that they need in a facility or even at home if they need caregivers to come. And so there are strategies that um, attorneys and others can use to help a family uh, be strategic about what to spend it on. And so that's one of the areas where I focus is understanding all of the assets that a family has, what income that they have, and then what things can be moved around lawfully in order to maintain the most for the family so that you know a spouse isn't impoverished just because one needs care. Um, that didn't work so well, and that's why some of the rules in the past have changed because we don't want to bankrupt the spouse that needs to continue leaving, living in the community just because their spouse needed to go to a facility if that's it's necessary. Often... One spouse is deathly afraid of going on Medicaid because they are still believing that the other spouse will have nothing. Right. And there are spousal impoverishment rules to try to prevent that from happening now. We don't need two people right, cared for by the state if we can let one um, continue to have enough to be sustained in the community. And it is certainly harder for a family to meet the um, requirements of living at home when it comes to property taxes, right, from a rural community compared to living, you know, in, in some of the suburbs of, of um, suburbs of Columbus that have a higher tax basis because the rules are set across the state in terms of how much a, a couple can keep or how much an individual can keep. Those are those are set. Um, and dollars don't always go as far, right, in every community. When should an individual consider applying for Medicaid? What determines that eligibility? I mean, is there a checklist? Hmm. 
There, there is a list if you work with someone. Um, I, I hand a family a list of the documents that would be needed for them to gather. Um, generally, five years worth of bank statements, five years worth of you know documentation. And I like to say it's daunting, but doable. Um, there is quite a process. And I will say as a taxpayer in Ohio, I appreciate the rigor involved in making sure someone hasn't tried to cheat the system. A lot of schemes, you know, well, what if I just transfer the you know, house to the kids and just pretend, mm-hmm. what if I just put it under the mattress? Like someone has already thought of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As we joke, right, many rules are made because someone has already broken them yes. before they were even rules. But yeah, the same is true for, the true for Medicaid. Um, your question about when should someone apply, I would say it's best to plan in advance for the possibility. Because then if you don't need Medicaid, it's okay. You've got a plan. Ideally, plans happen more than five years before care is needed. But nobody knows when that day might come that you might need care and not have enough money to independently pay for it forever. Um, Other families are more strategic, saying we see it as a possibility. We would like to wall off some of our money. There are options in terms of trusts um, where or other gifts that can be made um, far enough in advance that the family is not penalized for making those gifts. And it is an opportunity to ensure that um, certain assets are protected. You know, if you had a, a family farm that's been in the family for generations, um, I'm the ninth generation from Ohio, seven from the same farm, as an example, where I grew up, like that would really matter. You wouldn't want to just lose it and say, oh, we'll just sell the house and use the proceeds to pay for the nursing home. Like sometimes there are things that really matter. And so the sooner you plan, the more options you have. And I kind of joke that there's two kinds of planning, right? There's crisis planning when you're, mm-hmm. I've said this with estate planning, right? When you're already horizontal and then there's the vertical planning when you're upright and making your own decisions and signing your own documents. Right. right. So let's go back and take a little bit more detail on this process. Somebody's going to apply for Medicaid. Um, they may or may not have planned ahead, but they're, mm-hmm. what exactly is the process it sounds like a paperwork nightmare <laughs> um and if they don't have a larray to help them what is going to happen many facilities will uh, have social workers that will help with the application um it is a little bit of a conflict of interest at times because they're incentivized to get money and to get it faster and they can't provide legal advice about what can be lawfully kept, what can be lawfully transferred, and what can't. And so it is an option to have an application prepared for free, generally by the facility. Um, it's just they, they can't necessarily help you preserve some things that may be available to you without you knowing. So that is one thing. It also doesn't necessarily provide all of the peace of mind to the spouse about what will happen to them, right? Because the facility is there to, to get the applicant approved. And some of the downstream consequences are where I find the biggest surprises are still coming. What I mean by that is qualifying for Medicaid is one set of rules. You can still have a house if you're married. You can still have a car if you're married. But nobody really has a conversation to say, oh, yeah, guess what? Um You can't really die with those things and be on Medicaid and leave them to whomever you would choose, especially if it's just you, right? Mm -hmm. So qualifying for Medicaid doesn't mean you get to keep it and leave it to son Johnny, right, when you're gone. 
And so the state does have an opportunity to recover against those assets that they might let you keep while you are still alive if you need them and if you meet other criteria. And so the nursing facilities are again in a place of eligibility and they're seeking getting you on benefits. They can't really talk to you about the aftermath of what happens when you die if you have received benefits mm-hmm. and you still have things that the state has a has an interest in. Right, because Johnny could have moved into that house and oops, found out from the state later on that um, they, they he didn't have the right to it. That's right. That's when a lien may be placed on those assets. Again, if there's a surviving spouse, all the rules are different. Um, it's very different than if it's just a child. It's even more different if it's a grandchild instead of a child, what someone may be able to keep or transfer. And so those are not, those are very nuanced things that not every facility is prepared to counsel on, nor um, can they, right, without the unlawful practice of law. All right. So you're, you are kind of saying you probably need a lawyer without it being self-serving, of course, but it sounds as though they're just to, to lay out both sides of the coin, Mm-hmm. To have a lawyer to understand, okay, doing this, yes, doing, you know, everybody's kind of self-serving in that situation. A lawyer can maybe be in the middle of explaining. I'll give you a perfect example. One family I'm helping currently started working with a facility to have the application prepared. The facility, in working with the local job and family services office through their county, um, communicated that they are not eligible. They simply own one extra empty parcel of land adjoining their home. And it is being treated as a separate parcel, therefore not their primary residence, therefore they're going to have to sell this land that they've had for 40 years. Like, wait, 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 right? I'm really glad they found their way to me because I was able to simply provide the support for them to not have to sell this land and liquidate the proceeds and spend it on mom's care. So that one thing alone, Yes, there are differences if that land is down the road, across the road, right? Not connected. But in this case, they were eligible to keep it. And I had to go toe to toe with Job and Family Services um, in order to change this. But they needed an advocate because they were otherwise stuck with selling the land. Mm -hmm. But for a neighbor who said, I've talked to somebody and I think you should too, um, I think you can keep this. But like that made an enormous difference in the outcome, especially for the spouse who will continue to live there. Everyone thinks that. this is going to just happen overnight. And hopefully a lawyer will make it uh, more expeditious, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. How long should someone prepare that to, to deal with this process? Again, I'm going to say years in advance is the first answer. Right. Um, there are many things one can do strategically to be prepared for this possibility. The next answer would be um, when someone is still in the hospital and the family feels that it's likely they will not be able to to return home alone without some level of care or that they will need to live in assisted living or, or long-term care for some considerable period of time. Even when they're in the hospital, that's when bank statements and things are starting to come and it's easier to start retaining them sooner than later. So um, when it's looking probable, it's the right time to consult um, and get some advice about what things to hold on to and start to gather. It is surprising to most families what one can do to preserve assets if someone is already in a facility. I think that it's a misnomer that money needs to be completely spent down to the $2,000 limit Mm -hmm. that might Mm -hmm. face an individual when it comes to assets. Um, But there really are some things that can and should be done. 
paying for funerals, right? There, there. That's just one small example of things that people need to do sooner than later. And so I find that families often wait too late. They assume it's inevitable that Medicaid is going to be needed. They know we have to spend down to a certain limit. Sometimes they wait until there's not enough assets left to even pay for professional help to guide them through this process. Mm-hmm. And so it's a several-month process. And again, the sooner you start, the better. Time really matters, too, because sometimes you would rather have paid out privately or you're able to pay privately to live in a facility of your choice. But you're also better positioned to receive a bed to remain in that facility when you do run out of funds. Mm -hmm. As an example, one facility here on Central Ohio has like 97 beds, but only five of them accept Medicaid benefits. Right. The facility doesn't bring in as much money compared to someone that's writing a check every month. So they understandably limit the number of people right on the Medicaid program. The people who have those five beds were in that facility for years. And so the sooner that you know you might need one of those beds and the sooner you can get on one of those waiting lists, you're going to stand a much better chance of staying in the facility and having um, the government benefits pay for your care going forward. If you have worked with the facility to say, hey, I think this is a possibility, the chances of you getting that bed for your parent or grandparent compared to somebody that just rolled out of the hospital Monday because mom, you know, fell two weeks earlier, it's night and day. So if someone's already declining in needs and their care is already being provided, then again, I think it's time to start to look at the possibilities in order to increase the chances that mom or dad or grandparents stay in that facility. Right. And this isn't information that they can hide. Once they fill out the Medicaid information, the facility knows what assets there are. Mm -hmm. So they would know whether an individual (coughs) is a paying customer, resident, long long before, short before they actually run out of, of funding. And sometimes adult children in particular are chipping in in order for mom or dad to be down the street. And so I don't know how transparent it always is um, that someone is nearing the end of their assets or the end of the tolerance for their children or Mm in-laws, right, to to keep supporting their care or subsidizing their care, especially when there's some optimism that someone may be able to return home and that may not be panning out. And so I think that's why the dialogue is really important with the facility about the possibilities as well as a professional who can, can help navigate this path. Obviously, there are people that are denied Medicaid. What leads to that denial and what should they do to get the decision reversed if they can? Certainly, um, there's an appeals process where um, Job and Family Services right, is contacted. You can represent yourself, right, or you can be represented by a family member or um, a chosen agent if there is someone that you have named while you still had the capacity to do so. And, and I think it's a matter of understanding. An example where things are muddy is when gifts have been made. Is a gift to a church uh, considered, you know, something that's disallowed? Well, usually, yes. If you are broke because you've given away your money, that's not something that is going to, you know, help eligibility. And debating, for example, what is a gift? You know, was that gift made with the intention of qualifying for Medicaid? No. I was tithing or I was simply giving my grandchild a wedding gift. But the rule that says, you know, you can't give away or sell something without getting back something that's fair market value in exchange, that feels like a gift. 
So that would be an example of where, you know, eligibility sometimes is questioned, people are denied, and you're you're going through an appeals process to say, wait, let me just prove to you I had no idea I was going to have a stroke. However, if that person instead had Parkinson's and they're making big gifts, like, wait, you might have had some inclination that you might have, you know, needed more care than you were getting currently and that you might run out of assets. So those are where there's gray area. It's just not like a simple mm-hmm. black and white. Mm-hmm. Lorraine, there are um, challenges that Medicaid clients face from what I've heard from some family members particularly looking for the availability of their providers. Have you been hearing the same issue from your clients? Certainly. Healthcare is a concern, and it is part of the long-term care Medicaid program. There are restrictions because not every provider accepts every form of Medicaid, and it is helpful when your client can maintain the secondary insurance that they already had. If they have United Healthcare keep it. Medicaid can be a third payer. So Medicare would continue to be first for someone over 65. And then their standard health insurance that they had before they needed care should be, my recommendation has generally been to keep that in force because the list of providers that may accept, you know, that Aetna plan, Mm -hmm. that medical mutual, right? Mm -hmm. Those are usually much broader especially for specialists, mm-hmm. you'll find more specialists than, than providers that take only Medicaid if there's someone over 65 that just has Medicare and Medicaid. So providers so, matter. So mm-hmm. for someone like me who is on the traditional Medicare plans and I have a supplement, it's that supplement you're saying? Yes. Interesting. Now, if it's an Advantage plan, then Medicaid is the second no, the Advantage plan could still be maintained as the second. Okay. Well, you would still have Medicare Advantage plan paying, mm-hmm. and then Medicaid would come behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, And that is preferred because, again, the list of providers available to you would be significantly broader than if you were only, only having Medicaid as your only option. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Great. Yeah. Right. That, that's an yeah. easy fix for something that's become huge. And so while it may be harder to work with job and family services to say we need to keep some of the income in order to pay for this medical care um, and keep the premiums paid, um, it's usually to the best interest of the client than just saying we'll just put you on Medicaid and you won't have to worry about any medical expenses moving forward. Right. And and for the state, it's to their advantage because it's not increasing the cost within Medicaid. Right. Fewer services than need to be rendered actually by the Medicaid providers that, again, they're only paying that bill. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned job and family services. Is that the umbrella over Medicaid? Or you mentioned a couple of different agencies mm-hmm. uh, who I guess potentially who you're going to have to work with, I maybe being familiar with the agency's names. Yes. So job and family services is the organization that is involved in eligibility for um for for an individual that is seeking long-term care Medicaid services. So the money for Medicaid flows through that agency. They're, they're the ones okay. that assess eligibility. All right. If someone is to, um, to, to be assessed medically, there's a different agency. And for us, that's the Central Area Agency on Aging okay. that would ensure that someone is medically requiring the care that is being sought. 
So it's a combination of agencies. But for the most part, when you say Ohio Medicaid, um, it's the job and family services is the face for most families during the application process and during the renewal process. Okay. I think that's important to know right. who you're dealing with right. and, and the names. And that way it's like, well, where'd they come from sort of thing. So, okay. And, no, and renewal is every year, just like Medicare. Correct. And there was, there was a hiatus during COVID because the public health emergency, mm-hmm. and there's now a process in place that the public health emergency has ended, and people who may have lost eligibility during the public health emergency um, had to be maintained on the roster. And so there's now a, an enormous renewal effort, if you will, to, to assess eligibility because that is a process that did not occur for quite some time. And you can imagine over that number of years, changes happened for several families in income, in assets. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier to the potential, you gave scenarios of potential fraud of that giving away money, uh, whether you tried or not fraud, you just did and didn't think about it. Okay. So I, I can imagine the amount of fraud occurring in Medicaid is there and probably increasing just because I want to be a part of, you know, that sort of thing. It's just that you see the opportunity and whether it's intentional, unintentional, whatever, but Do you have tips on how to fight fraud and is there a legal responsibility to report fraud? Mm -hmm. Um, As an officer of the court, as an attorney, there is a duty. And if someone comes to me and suggests they have a lot of money on the the mattress, um, that's obviously something that I can't unhear. Right. You can't go la, 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 la and walk (laughs) away. Right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Or yes, let's just pretend that you gave that away four four years and 11 months ago. Right. When it was yeah. and we'll just wait a month and magically everything will work out when it was really, you know, two weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Those those just aren't those things. I haven't seen a lot of fraud. What I have seen, though, is some fraud under the guise of confusion. Right. Or mm-hmm. fear. Sure. I have an extra bank account that somebody doesn't know about because I'm really afraid since I'm still living in my home that there will be an emergency. And so this is the the, the account right that I share um, with job and family services, and this is the one that I have for an emergency. And I'm like, I cannot represent you unless we move forward and find a way for this to be above board and let's make you eligible, right? Let's take care of some of the spend down that you need to do. Let's take care of the things that we can do to, to maintain your eligibility and you don't have to live in fear that someone's going to knock on your door. Mm-hmm. And right. so I have helped clients with that as needed. But again, it wasn't done intentionally, but it still is, Right. A, representa- a misrepresentation. Or misinformation they got from somebody going, yeah, you can do oh, that. Yes. You have two books, <laughs> right. basically. Right. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's out there, of course. Yeah. You know, I we recently went through the budget process here in Ohio, and I th- this all sort of comes to play because Medicaid is such a huge part of our state budget. And therefore, everyone assumes it's fraudulent because it's so big. Well, and that's not true. And as you mentioned, fraud could be a mistake, not an intentional infraction of the rules. Um, I I wish that we could help individuals learn more about Medicaid up front and understand what it's for. It's not there to keep people from working. It's not there to... um, take care of people who really could buy their own insurance. There is a lot of um, a lot of layers that are, that are protecting the program, those dollars, and this vulnerable population. And because we only hear snippets when everybody's fighting over every dollar in the state budget, 
we get a lot of really bad press on Medicaid when it's been a phenomenal program, um, keeping not just older adults safe, whether in their home or a facility, but also making sure kids are eating. And what I have seen is far greater demand than availability of caregivers and resources and Medicaid beds. Right. I don't see people who shouldn't be receiving benefits that aren't sick enough, that aren't broken off. What I, what I find is that there's such a need and there aren't enough hours available for someone to receive home services, as an example. And so I, I think it's just been the opposite of my experience. I don't, you know, observe many families that should not, should not be seeking benefits who are. The other thing I have not experienced personally would be people coming to me to save millions mm-hmm. years in advance to wall it off in a trust so that they can just be on the state dole when the time comes. What I have found is that, you know, if planning is done correctly, funds could be there to supplement um, the care provided to that resident of the facility. Not just, you know, a new lift chair every now and again, but some kind of music therapy or, um, you know, regular personalized care. And, And I think that's what really matters to me. It's not about protecting the next generation. It's about ensuring that that person can have the care that they need or expect. So an example I will give you personally was my grandmother. When she went through spend down and received, at the time it was $45 a month was her personal allowance. It's now 50. Whoa, inflation. (laughs) Right, it's now 50. But that $50 didn't go very far. No. She got her hair done every week with a wash and set at the local beauty shop. And when she moved to a facility, she had it done there. But it was $35 plus tip, maybe 40 right by the time she left there a few years later. And that was per week. And so for her to have her hair done, even when she was mildly confused, it was still meant the world to her. And she felt like a new person, right, when she came out of that salon with her Mm -hmm. hair done. And that was the sort of thing where her money had to be spent down to private pay for a few months in full. Her money was gone. And then, right, (laughs) options would have been just to chop off her hair. She never had a pixie in her life. Right. right. Those right. are the, the choices. Our family was able to provide supplemental care for her so she could have a few basic things that mattered. But that's what planning in many cases has been about for me. Like, how do we make sure that that person that has maybe a few teeth missing or, or wiggly in their 90s, but they're still mostly their teeth? I want to make sure that we don't just pull all of their teeth and hand them dentures. Right. Let's get them to the dentist. You know, that M- Medicaid would provide some basic dental care, right? Is it the care that you would want for yourself or for your parents? And so to be able to have funds available, and I would, if it were me, I would prefer that those funds be mine, that in some way, shape, or form, I have, you know, got a little pot that could still be used to supplement my care, especially in a situation where I can't begin to pay for the full bill for my care, but can I pay for a few things that based on my pride, I still would like to be able to do so Mm -hmm. that someone doesn't have to write a check for me. We talked uh, early on about what happens when an individual passes away. Um, There can be some surprises, and people, again, need to educate themselves on these issues ahead of time, not just the individual on Medicaid, but family members, because they are likely going to be affected. So there are steps that relatives or estate administrators take, and it's called an estate recovery plan. Can you give us a little bit of an overview on that and tips on how to ensure that there are no legal ramifications concerning the survivors when the Medicaid patient passes? Certainly. There is a program that when the Medicaid patient passes, um, there's mandatory reporting to the state 
about the assets owned in the name of that Medicaid recipient. Recovery is not due immediately upon death. There are many situations in which recovery is delayed, and that is primarily driven on whether the spouse is still living and whether there's a special needs child or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. There may be really good reasons why the the delay may occur, um, and some families don't understand that. Um, So if dad was on Medicaid and 20 years later mom dies and mom never needed care, even when mom goes, there still has to be a reporting. And sometimes families are surprised because they're like, what? Mom died. Mom didn't receive care. This is fine. I'm like, I know, but we have to go back and tell them because maybe your dad did. And sometimes people don't even know, but the state maintains records based on you know date of birth and social security number. And so when we handle a probate estate in particular, we are constantly working with Medicaid state recovery at the attorney general's office to inform them of the passing to make sure that the beneficiaries who do receive benefits have full confidence that someone's not going to knock on their door years later to say, hey, guess what? Part of that house is really mine. Right. And so it's a it's an important process. It's my understanding recoveries are around 2%, right, of the budget spent on some of these programs. And so it is not a significant part. It is not a moneymaker. But at the same time, it does feel fair that if somebody did die with certain assets that are no longer being used by a spouse, um, where there is a duty of care, that they would be available to to help recover and offset. Um, Medicaid estate recovery cannot take anything above and beyond that which the state has paid out. Right. And as I mentioned, the state generally pays out far more than they're ever able to collect. Um, but it is simply something that exists in Ohio. Does that automatically kick in a probate situation then? Or so, because you, you mentioned that, mm-hmm. that if any uh, like mom or dad were in Medicaid, kind of expect that a probate's going to be kind of kicking in? If there's an asset to be probated. Okay. So if there is something, a house, a car, a bank account, right? Okay. If there is something, then before beneficiaries receive anything, um, Medicaid has to give the nod to say, yes, um, that's fine. Go ahead and distribute it, right? There yeah. is no debt owed for this person or please write a check mm-hmm. for the following because this is the amount owed um because they're first in line they're 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 toward or the top toward the top that yes is, yeah we, we believe in burying people first that's the first credit. right 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 <laughs> whoever paid for the funeral yeah. right but but yes medicaid does have have priority over you know as we joked about johnny you know getting getting mm-hmm. money and okay. so mom and dad have to pay for their bills if they're due okay and just because something passed directly, not through probate, but it passed directly to a, a relative, doesn't mean the state isn't going to figure that out and come back. That's correct. There are databases and systems in place to ensure that direct transfers are also on the radar um, because those assets are also subject to a state recovery for the most part. And again, having someone who uh, is a professional to help you understand which things are available which things will be available, which things should be available, and which should not be available, is a very important process because, um, especially with retirement accounts as an example, rules continue to change about what you can have when you go on Medicaid. So it's um, necessary to continue to understand what you can have or not have when you off Medicaid. And so just continuing to have that dialogue, especially, like I said, decades sometimes pass, right, between between people. So um, it's the best policy is no surprises, right. and that takes effort. And and really mm. good documentation. Yes. Sounds like it. Yeah. 
yeah, don't be that never hurts. Look in all the lock boxes and all the folders, <laughs> mm. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So as we always do, you know, provide our guests with that opportunity to provide any last words of wisdom. Um, do you have any other suggestions or advice for our listener? Plan, plan, plan. Knowledge, you know, as I've said before, is helpful, but unless you take action, um, that knowledge that you've gained isn't isn't going to do you any good. I will say it's also not as scary when you have a guide. And so finding someone that you can work with that will uh, make it less scary and help you or your family navigate that forest um, is is the best advice I can give. Lorraine, thank you so much. I can't tell you how how exciting it is to be able to provide information clearly and concisely for our listeners because needless to say it's a it's a confusing situation and scary very scary so thank you to Larray schrader from schrader law for joining us today listeners thank you for joining us and do not forget to check our show notes for contact information and resources which are also on our website at lookingforwardourway.com we're looking forward to hearing your feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes.